You know that a man dies if he loses five pints of blood. The time is now. The place is the space between your ears. The people are lizards, dissecting the finest in science fictional and fantastical literature for all your auditory pleasures. You are now listening to Lizard People, Dear Readers. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Lizard People, Dear Readers, the science fiction fantasy book podcast about lizard people, by lizard people, about lizard people, for lizard people. That's not always about lizard people. In fact, this week it is about The Peripheral by William Gibson. Story of cyberpunk things. Future people, which Peter Paris chose this week. Oh, with me, as always. I'm George Chimples. With me, as always, is Nathan Edwards. You're doing great today. I'm always doing great. How are you, Nathan? I am also doing great. Peter Paris, how are you? When I grow up, I want to become a space pirate. Aren't you, aren't you a grown man? No. Maybe? Oh. Because I'm not a space pirate yet. Have you had your bat mitzvah yet? Bar mitzvah? Neither. Okay, you're not a man yet. You've got time. That's the good news. Whew. Safe. What you also have is a book to tell us about. That's right. Uh, The book is The Peripheral. And uh, as we said, it is about future people. Specifically... uh, no, it's by William Gibson, who um, you may know from such books as Neuromancer uh, and several others. One of my favorite he invented, authors. But, uh, he he yes, invented he, the character of Johnny Mnemonic. He did. He did. And uh, I think Keanu Reeves should, should thank him for that, or maybe not. Uh, that movie had a junkie dolphin. It did. It did. But it also had Beat Takeshi. And Dolph Lundgren. As a street the, preacher mercenary that says, it's Jesus time. He does say it's Jesus time. That's true. I always forget about Jesus time. I, I can't. You can't? Not with Dolph Lundgren saying it. It won't let me. It also has Udo Kier in it, but he's in everything. And William Henry Gibson, William true. Gibson also wrote uh, Mona Lisa Overdrive. He did. Yes. And Idoru and Count Zero. and Spook Country. Yes, Spook yes. Country. That was Hidden Recognition. And, he uh, is one of science fiction's uh, luminaries, I would dare say. I would you agree. could say that. You could say that. He did, in fact, coin the term cyberspace. And also the interwebs. Yes, the interwebs. And mirror shades. That's right. Possibly. And razor girls. Razor girls? Razor yep. girls. Perry's. The Peripheral anyway, is a book so about as people we in saying, the future. That's right. <laughs> the Peripheral is a book about people in the future. Specifically... Two separate futures, two sets of people. Wait, hold on one second. Uh, We should give the listeners a warning here that, uh, of course, major spoilers will be following, have perhaps already begun, and will be following this as we get deep into the plot. So if you haven't read it yet, um, go ahead and read it right now. Okay, Peter, we're we're safe now. We've we've cleared out the bad people. Okay, go. 
Um, well, I mean, yeah, it's, I, I won't, uh, I won't throw anything out that doesn't more or less happen in the, uh, the first hundred pages worth of the book, but, yeah, so there are two, uh, two futures. One, uh, the first, and, uh, there's a main character in each future, I should follow that up, too. Uh, the main character in the nearer of the two futures is Flynn Fisher, who, uh, lives with her brother in back backcountry America somewhere. Um... I had a vague impression of Texas, but I don't think the book actually said. I thought the Carolinas. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I figured it was like Kentucky. Huh. Interesting. Go. Could be anywhere. The Wikipedia set page just says America, so. Rural is the key. Rural yeah, and poor. Very rural. Uh, and the world is very kind of like 20 years in the future. It's a little bit... Things are a little bit weird, not going so great due to climate change and what what have you. There are also a lot of 3D printers, um, which Drums. I thought actually started off kind of goofy, but uh, I was feeling it a bit more as the book went on. I really liked that, actually. Yeah? Yeah. Anyway, and the uh, the other one is a uh, the other future, I should say, and the main character in that future is set maybe another 80 years beyond that. And uh, the character there is Wilf Netherton, who is a British publicist, sort of. Uh, although PR serves a very strange function in the future. And uh, the way the book is set up, you jump back and forth between the two perspectives of the two characters as uh, the two worlds begin interacting with each other. And uh, things start to progress from there. That about, how's, uh, how's it possible, uh, Peter, that the two worlds are interacting? That's a uh, that's a good question, Nathan. And uh, yeah, so as any as with any good time travel story, it's important to get the time travel rules established. the uh, The connection between the two worlds is that there is a a means of communication with the past that has shown up myster somewhat mysteriously in the future. And uh, by sending, connecting uh, with a computer to this server, they call it, and uh, accessing it in various ways, it seems that people in the future can communicate with a past point in their own timeline. The catch being that at that point, that timeline diverges and is no longer related to the original world. So it's like if we had a, if we found a telephone that could talk to the 1930s. Exactly. And it creates this kind of like, it's a kind of a loose quantum theory adaptation of a multiverse type thing going on, basically. So it's yeah, like if it's... I had warned them about the stock market crash, that would not change my past, but it would spin off a new uh, universe in which potentially my information about the stock market crash would have caused it not to happen. Yeah. Exactly. And this being a good Gibson tale, of course, there's a lot of weird invented slang that he comes up with. And they call these things pults, I believe. Um, that's right pulse for poltergeist yeah and they're basically these alternate timelines through this strange server kind of this underground uh pastime almost a dalliance for the very super rich who kind of just use them to do their own thing and i thought they called play them like servers uh, stubs and the pult was the term for uh one of the characters before they realized who he was oh uh, yeah if that could the be stubs it. were the different parallel world lines so you had different stubs that you created inside the server, I think. Yeah, and that you could interact were, with. 
the Pults were people in those worlds who could, say, operate a remote drone in the original world line. Right, right. And so basically outsourcing to an entirely different uh, space-time continuum. And the rich basically play the stubs like a game. And in Flynn's time, she's actually one of the things that becomes that drives the conflicts is that there's this associate of Wilf Netherton is influencing their timeline, but so is this other um, shadowy party. So they're kind of competing against each other in this other world. And it creates this interesting thing with Flynn, where she's almost a piece, like a game piece between these people in the future. Yeah, But it's not they their future, so they don't care. They don't view them as being real <laughs> to a certain point. So should should we talk about the event that um, starts this, the book off? Because I feel like that would go a long way towards sort of contextualizing yes. what you're saying. Absolutely. Yeah, sure. Let's talk about that. So uh, the event that Nathan's talking about is while uh, er, Flynn's brother starts doing a job, unknowingly for these people from the future. And uh, Flynn, while filling in for him, witnesses a murder. And since she is the only witness to this murder, um, and because of the kind of Byzantine rules by which the future works, uh, they need to get her to positive... She's the only person who can positively identify the killer in this parallel world line. So she instantly becomes valuable to all the interested parties. She or her brother is hired to basically fly a security drone in the future. He thinks it's a game um, and he basically gets arrested and she has to fill in for him uh, piloting this quadcopter, which uh, is how she witnesses the murder. That's yeah. And right. so I, yeah. I want to talk about Flynn a little because she so she's in this rural southern sort of space where there's only like one industry in town and it's kind of this Walmart manufacturing center and everyone seems to make their money by either working there or at fast food places or these sort of making drugs, drugs. making drugs yeah. or doing illegal 3d printing. That's kind of based off of copyrighted stuff. So they talk about like how they'll all have smartphones, but a lot of them are funny because they're made by their buddies rather than the big corporation. And then she herself doesn't have really stable employment aside from these odd kind of, jobs and so she has talked about how she makes money sometimes by serving as a rich guy scout in a first person shooter like the guy's too lazy to actually go and find people to kill in the game so she goes and finds them then he comes along and gets the kill in this video game in her time and so she thinks she's being hired to play another video game and she's good at playing video games her brother is exceptionally good at playing video games because he's a member a former member of the First hap haptic recon force or something? Yes, the first haptic recon force, which, which presumably is, is a uh, is a force that uses these kind of digital tattoos that they put on you that give you super fast muscle reflexes and lets you interface like with that. like yeah, I didn't, lets I you didn't... interface with drones and things and yeah. so there's a lot of also like old war vets, not old, they're young people, but there are a lot of war veterans in this town because that seems to be the only other way to make money is to be in the armed forces. Yeah. One of the things I like about uh, Gibson is that this is he sort of extrapolates from current events what, you know, a, a possible future that sort of you can see where we got there from here. Like, yeah. you know, if the economy crashes, if global warming gets worse, you know, you would see, you know, a downturn in the economy. You'd see like 
people playing with drones, unemployed veterans, you know, people who can't get good health care, people well, paying to me, too much that money. That didn't even for feel extrapolated. That felt very contemporary because I know I was well, the future's already here. It's not evenly distributed, yeah. right? I mean, like you go to <laughs> yeah. some of these towns around where I live and it's the Nothing same thing where it's you know, it's it's totally fallen down economy and all that exists are odd jobs and there's a lot of veterans in those places um yeah like to me it felt like very real the only thing difference was that 3d printing was fully accepted and and functional and drones were a bigger deal than they are now but otherwise i was like this could be flynn's future time is really close to our own yeah. <laughs> which i thought yeah. was great oh i love I that agree. no that was that was one of the things i wanted to talk to you guys about and the other sure. thing is you know you have kind of this uh slumpish thing where it seems like literally everything is owned by hefty mart the walmart equivalent hefty yeah. mart i liked that yeah um so yeah it, that world does feel very contemporary to me too like um like even like the social media stuff it seems like kind of a blend between like foursquare and facebook and, and twitter yeah. yeah but uh yeah, so George, you said you liked the 3D printing stuff. I thought it sounded a little goofy at first because it was still very sounded very rooted in like the you know cranking out the plastic stuff, and then everything else is more about what you put in it. But as the, he kind of listed off some of the stuff they made in there, I uh, I bought it more and more. What so I liked, what you what you like about that? I, I thought it was gimmicky at first too because it seems very. This is the hot new fad right now is 3D printing. So I'm going to write it into my book. Yeah, like, you know, yeah, it's it's kind of a, a faddish thing. And, but with Gibson, part of it is, as I got more into the story, I felt, and part of it's just the trust I have for Gibson because he, I think he's a very smart writer and obviously he's very good at foreseeing certain things. Like you read Neuromancer and you read how the internet has evolved since then. And it's really, his foresight's quite stunning. And yeah. so I was thinking, if 3D printing does have the promise that all of its proponents tell us it has, you know, if it fulfills that promise that people tell us about, this is what it would look like. And it would put a lot of power in the hands of regular people to do things, but it would also put a lot of power in the corporations to very carefully guard their proprietary, you know, recipes or whatever you want to call it for their own products. But that, you know, there's no reason why people wouldn't be able to hack it and do their own things like people do now with software and um, other things like that. And so one of the things I liked about the 3D printing thing was you had Hefty Mart doing all of this stuff, but that Flynn's friends, they're kind of in a dead end town, but they, she had some very smart friends who were essentially hackers who had this own industry of their own that they'd kind of made their own and made this kind of backwater, not, not, not backwater, black market economy that I thought that seemed very real to me that people would find a way to make this technology work for them as well, at least on the margins. Yeah, so I thought that was kinda, cool. cool. I think that's what kind of sold it for me too. Is like it was really a convincing vision of like, all right, these are real simple people. The characters act in a way where you know they're real practical, like people. You know, you've met people with that kind of mindset. You know, it's like, all right, we're getting stuff done. Here's how we get stuff done. Real yeah. straightforward, and this is how that can actually fit into their lives. And yeah, I thought it was you know pretty good and used done in a credible way, like you know, custom phone stuff or. You know, add-ons for prosthetics that don't quite fit just right. You know, all kinds of things like that. That really uh, it made sense to me. Yeah. Have any uh, of you, either of you, done anything with three D printing? I have not. Um, 
a site I used to write for called uh, Tested does a lot of 3D printing stuff, and it's all really cool. Uh, I've not been able to justify the expense of a 3D printer for myself. Yeah, I I can't tell you how many time how many hours I've spent reading up on building one on the internet, but also something I haven't really devoted the money to yet. Yeah, but I could see it. It's the kind of thing where if it really did take off, you know, yeah, I kind of feel yeah. the same way about certain kinds of like wearable tech. It's like people really like to poo-poo Google Glass or iWatches or this and that. And I kind of do as well. But then I think I used to think smartphones were really stupid. And clearly I was very wrong about that. So maybe I need to have a more open mind about this technology because a lot of it seems, you know, the iPod seems stupid when it came out, but it changed everything. So once it becomes mature, there's a lot of possibilities for some yeah, of like, this stuff. Like they say in Silicon Valley, it's all about finding the killer app. Yeah, yeah. And it always seems stupid until suddenly, like, within a week span, it seems essential. Yeah. yeah. It's like, oh, no, obviously that was what we wanted. How could yeah, we not like, have seen it? MP3 players, smartphones, tablets, ultrabooks. Everything is, like... Poo pooed as like a, a a toy for the dilettante rich, and then three generations later, everyone has one, and then five generations later, you're like, how did we ever live without this? Yeah, it's kind of like you know, even cars were thought of that way, where cars were viewed like, why would you do that when you've got a horse, which is perfectly good, and it's just something that like weird, creepy people like fiddled around with, and you know, here we are today. There so. was something I caught in caught towards the end of the book that I don't know if you guys caught, but. Uh, Netherton made some kind of offhand comment to Flynn about social media stuff disappearing. And, well, I forget what it was called, but the Facebook equivalent, I think it was Badger, yeah. was basically the only thing left. I thought that was kind of an interesting uh, interesting thing, because social stuff's real big right now. Yeah. And it, it was something that wasn't kind of extrapolated in the direction that I would normally expect. Well, I think part of the reason for that, and I'm going to, it's going to get real spoilery now, is in Netherton's future, he describes it as being post-jackpot. And what becomes clear about his future as you get more and more into the book is that the jackpot was this sort of post-singularity, post, is kind of a singularity event. And that all the people post-jackpot basically live in a post-scarcity society where almost everyone's rich and gets to do things and is very cool. The problem well, is immediately is rich to a degree. To a degree. The problem is that before the jackpot, the global warming thing got really bad and disease got really bad and war got really bad. So most of the people died. Yeah, and I love that I love that idea. It's like some great worldwide apocalypse and it's terrible and it's the end of the world until you get to the people who survive it and they all just consider themselves really lucky. Yeah, and they're really lucky, and that's one of the reasons why they have to hire Pults to do things for them is because they've got a kind of a lack of manpower, I think, is kind of an implication. But also, that brings me back to the social media thing, is maybe they just don't have enough people to maintain, you know, a Facebook network kind of thing anymore. It's just not as important. Um, I don't know. I think I, I, think I, got, I guess the way I saw it was kind of that it was... All of the contacts and friend management stuff seemed like it was kind of receding into the background because mm -hmm. they still but, had all the stuff in the future with like the icons popping up and it was all implanted in their body. You don't need a social app when you can call anybody by like touching your tongue to your palate, you know, or like telling the thing that's implanted in you to call Wilf, you know. Yeah, kind of just became ambient. Yeah, if you yeah. if you can see through somebody's eyes, 
if they let you and call them whenever and find their location whenever, why would you need social media? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the post-Jackpot Society was very interesting, but it was also very, there was a real sadness to it. And part of that comes from Wilf being the point of view character. And it makes it very clear that he has a certain distaste for the society as it currently is. He finds it kind of artificial and lacking in um, real attachments. And so when he starts getting in touch with Flynn, they form a real connection and Wilf almost falls in love with her and is smitten with her just because she seems so genuine. And he just has a distaste for like a lot of the affectations. Like there's a, his buddy who runs the stub has um, these two servants, which I found very fascinating. And he remarks that, you know, one of them has like double pupils and he found that just kind of grotesque. And she's got these weird tattoos of... It was cosmetic double pupils, not like a... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's just a purely cosmetic thing. And then they can do whatever they want to their bodies. She also has these tattoos, which are endangered animals that kind of flow around her skin and kind of retreat and react to the environment which is really cool, but he also finds it really goofy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, she's like gothy pants. Which is- yeah, but just... Sorry. Let's talk a little bit about the future then. Um, and I think there's kind of a couple of interesting ideas in there, but uh, the future that uh, they live in is kind of this weird panopticon po- or post-scarcity society where basically the world is implied, it's implied, is run by something called the CLEP, which is just a combination of giant criminal organizations and very rich people like russian mafia types the kleptocracy yeah yeah. Um, and they're very matter of fact about it and just the way things work people seem like all right your life's going to be fine as long as you don't you know get in our way at which point we will crush you into dust and that's basically the people who are running the entire world yeah and it seems like people had a good degree of freedom but it's because they also had all of their cares pretty much delivered towards them and so you know they had these so the title of the book is the peripheral and you can download your consciousness into peripheral bodies and run around and do stupid stuff and well it's not really downloading your consciousness it's your, it's more like just opening a high bandwidth uh yeah, yeah, audiovisual yeah. connection with them. your or remote control yeah basically like you've got a sense of smell and like you can it's very high bandwidth yeah, yeah so you like can a... run around you can alter your body to do whatever you want it to do and you it's basically and also all of the problems of the global warming and disease they've got nanotechnology to fix all that now so um there's not a lot of worries yeah not a lot of stuff to fight over either except for these stubs <laughs> right and uh the other thing about it that was that kind of relates to um netherton's dislike for the past is uh for the present the idea of the neo-primitivist the neo-primitives i thought that was kind of cool and that's uh basically this group of people in the future who you know deliberately reject different parts of the future technology or deliberately recreate and infect themselves with the common cold they fetishize the past basically when stuff was harder yeah exactly in a very superficial way yeah and so i think that's another big trend in here because netherton doesn't like that but some of the sort of there's i mean there's ash and austin and uh, a lot of the other people who are very into it on his side but there's also uh sort of the antagonist party they're they seem like they're more involved with some of the, the neo-primitive stuff yeah and the book opens with him kind of running this lady gaga-esque public figure 
as she's trying to broach a she's like a pop star and an artist and this sensation and also a diplomat and also a diplomat yeah but yeah. she's opening up a diplomatic channel for like the Amer- for americans or something with these neo primitivists who live on a you know the great pacific trash thing which they um, have sucked they've used nanobots to pull all the plastics out of and just like assembled it into some weird like floating sculpture city that they live in which yeah. i thought was also a cool idea yeah yeah also cool people living on the garbage patch but the idea of Lady Gaga as a diplomat is fascinating to me. Yeah. Yeah. But that's but that also precipitates something that happens later. That's kind of like the big event in his life where that kind of goes wrong. And so then he um he gets disgraced a little bit and he goes back to his buddy who's one of these cleps, and he's the one playing around with a stub that involves Flynn and they basically take Wilf. They're like, Well, you're a publicist, you're good at talking to people, so we're gonna have you talk to the people in the past and pretend like you're in the past with them um, in order to help us get our goals in, in the future. And um, yeah. eventually they pretty rapidly in the past, they're like, something is not right with these people at all. <laughs> and they aren't dummies, which I liked like the people in the past kind of suss things out pretty quickly and make themselves equals and kind of intelligence. And um, they have a good working capability. relationship yeah. at a certain point. Yeah. So capability. The- yeah, and the person who was murdered is the sister of this crazy diplomat lady. And as as they realize, um, as Wolf's party realizes that Flynn saw the murder, and the other party realizes that somebody saw the murder, they both start interfering more and more with the events in the stub where Flynn lives, and that like to the point of causing huge, huge sweeping changes. And most of the the book is actually you know simultaneously them trying to solve a murder in netherton's timeline and trying to fight off these antagonists in flynn's timeline while still like and the the stakes get just comically larger and larger until they're like buying off the county sheriff and then like the governor and then you know the president manipulating the stock market and the lottery and you know just just really really meddling deeply in flynn's timeline yeah at first they're kind of like they start giving Flynn's people like winning lottery numbers to pay them for doing various tasks. And then it turns into stock tips. It turns into at a, near the end, they basically own the entire town and, and then some, and this at the same token, the other group is doing the exact same thing and buying up commodities and like over the course of a week, like it's very rapid yeah. and sending uh, assassins and sending assassins like... using hitmen. You know, they don't have a physical presence in the timeline, but they basically, put jobs on posting boards for hitmen <laughs> and un- unlike silk road and like the dark web which yeah. is yeah. funny as well um and they you know they they like get in big with homeland security which is a huge pervasive force basically it seems to be the entire um the entire yeah. like homeland enforcement basically observe absorb the entire police force above, yeah they're the, like, yeah above just the above the level. like county level yeah yeah. yeah, they're they're the Fe- they're the FBI, Homeland Security, the DA, everything combined into one yeah. is Homeland Security. They're very invasive. It seems like very scary. Yeah. yeah. Again, you know, the future, extrapolating out it a little bit, our present stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the we should add the reason the book is called the Peripheral be- is because they realized to get Flynn to be able to ID the murderer, they basically send back in time these plans for. A headset that would let her interact with one of these peripherals that you can rent in the future basically giving her 
giving her telepresence in the future, which I thought was a pretty great idea. Yeah. It was very cool. I like how like the retroactive version of that was the little self-balancing tablet on two wheels. Yeah, like a little Segway tablet. Yeah, they, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what I viewed it as was a it was a tablet stapled to a Segway. So they've got I could, I could his face selling that. and a webcam. <laughs> they do three, sell those. I could see someone selling that three years from now. Do they? Yeah, they're expensive. They're like ten thousand bucks, but you can use them as like telepresence robots. I, I guess that little sphere thing that you can control with your iPhone is also a similar deal, huh? Yeah. Well, there's an episode of Community where. Um, one of the new ones on Yahoo, where they basically give a lot of, uh, they get a government grant to allow um, incarcerated criminals to attend classes at Greendale on little wheelie segways with tablets, and they just roll around the whole time. It's exactly like that. It's awesome. Sweet. Yeah, they have them today. Yeah. All right. So that's that's kind of the world and some of the some of the cool stuff about it. What did you guys uh, think of the writing? Loved it. Yeah. Yeah. Gibson is really good with language. And part of the way I feel like he gets you into the world is I really enjoy when people, you know, make up slang, but it can be very tricky not to make it sound stupid. And he like did the a first good job. 10 pages of Anathem. Yeah, yeah. And he did a good job, I thought. And it just, he's got a very, um, what do I want to say? He's very efficient at kind of just telling you things, but it's still kind of poetic. Like there's, a st- it's not just all straightforward. This did that, did that there's thoughtfulness that he makes kind of organically come yeah. through. I just, it's I love his like writing style. Easy, easy, even measured kind of efficient prose. Yeah. It's kind of dry, but it's still, but, but it still gets you to the deeper emotional core of things. Well, and that's, that's, that's kind of why I said, but like measured. Yeah. It's not yeah. like there's stuff missing. It's like, here's what there is. Straightforward, yeah. I guess is more what I meant. Yeah. And what got me about this is it's a very, the beginning part, especially it's a very big, it's a noirish mystery thing. And so it grips you like a good thriller. I think I got in about, I don't know, 20 pages. And I was like, I'm really excited to read this. And I read it pretty fast. It really is one of those things where I you know, couldn't put it down. I just kept reading it and reading it. I really liked where it was taking me. I thought it was really well put together. Well, I was I was gonna say I thought the, I thought the pacing really kept things moving in the story. Yeah, it's quick. Like, I like they didn't kind of sit and wait around while stuff would get done. There was a lot of ground to cover in this book. Yeah, yeah. Um, the the other thing I I wanted to I would think I, that I've always liked about Gibson's writing is I like his description of uh, descriptions of physical objects, like just the way he kind of describes things that. 70% of the time you know what they are, 30% you haven't heard of it before. Uh, but stuff like a, that Toyota, a Toyota Hilux truck in, uh, I think it was Spook Country. Or in this one, the Airstream trailer, and his descriptions of that at the beginning of the book. Oh, yeah. Really the... kind of, like, he's talking about it as like a silver teardrop, and just kind of the way he evokes what some of the stuff is kind of gives you a fresh perspective on things sometimes. At least it does for me. There is a review I read um, that was not positive from the AV Club that I'd like to read a little bit from, where I think they gave it a C- on the AV Club, and they were criticizing some of the writing, and they chose, and this goes directly to what you were saying, Peter. This is from the review. Nearly every sentence across numerous two-page chapters is a slog, composed chiefly of inelegant exposition. I totally disagree. 
Take, for instance, a passage that presents Flynn preparing for her trip into the game, gearing up with her brother's tomahawk. He called it an axe, not a tomahawk, but an axe was something you chopped wood with. She reached under, hooked it out, relieved to feel the weight. Didn't need to open it, but she did. Case was widest at the top, allowing for the part you'd have chopped wood with. Where the back of an axe would have been flat, like the face of a hammer, it was spiked, like a miniature blade, but curved the other way. And the author seemed, or the, the writer of the review seemed to feel that that was bad. I remember reading that and thinking, that's really cool. Um, you know, it's just a very spare, but it tells you a lot about what this thing means to her and to her brother and like what it's used for. I thought that's great, personally. Yeah, I, I think I think I kind of felt like it kind of captured for me the the way I look at things the first time I see them. Mm. Like the, the fresh impression you get about stuff. Like, uh, the first time you see something, you kind of always see it in a little bit of a... It tinges the way you see it every time after that. You know what I mean? Like, by going back to, like, that silver teardrop description or something. Yeah. It's kind of along those lines. But I... I felt the same thing like i i like that passage and I, I thought you know i i didn't have any problem with it yeah i've i've mentioned this before but i don't know if it was one of the episodes that actually made it onto the air but when i'm reading something i only really notice the prose i think when it's bad or exceptionally good mm-hmm. um most of the time i'm just allowing it myself to experience the content of it um yeah i i none of it really got in my way um there were a few passages that i really liked and i i did like his gift for description because a lot of artists or a lot of uh, authors they'll just they'll be very sparing knowing that if they just say a tree there a tree that you know will pop into your head and you'll know what kind of tree it looks like or a red wagon you know they'll they'll not bother to fill out descriptors for things because they know that um your brain is already picking something that it's familiar with to put in that place i thought his um over description you might say um of the tomahawk and other things was useful because it forced me to pull out of that and stuff that i thought that i might you know stuff that i might ordinarily just sort of fill in from my experience like the airstream trailer he takes the time to point out that well actually the outside is covered with expanding insulated foam like a giant grub and the inside is covered with a translucent polymer that they sprayed over whatever garbage happened to still be in the in the trailer you know Mm-hmm. Otherwise, I would have just filled that in with, oh, Airstream trailer, done. Kind of dingy, done. Yeah. Well, and then again, it was cool, too, because you got to go back to that thing in particular from uh, Wilf's perspective later in the book when he sees it for the first time. He thinks it's look, it looks like some kind of nanomachine accident, like something melted. Yeah. And, and that's cool. You get to see it from you get to see the past first from his point of view, and then you see the future from flynn's point of view and so you do get two people responding to the same things in different ways which is a really neat narrative trick and i think that gibson's prose the way he writes with it's not florid description it's still kind of spare he's got a very um yeah it's it, he's got a voice that it's it's really his and but it, it it lets you it builds an atmosphere that you can really sink into where you get a vibe the world seems alive with that description it's something you can grasp onto um rather than just you know oh there's a tree over there this thing's over here kind of that hemingway-esque thing that lets you fill in the blanks this one it's almost like you're sinking into a chair made out of these descriptions and it you you get the feel of it that's kind of what i was just thinking is it's not really so much exposition to my mind as it is you know focusing on like a thing here or a thing there like 
he talked a lot about the tomahawk, but he didn't talk a lot, you know, he didn't talk about the tomahawk and the seed and the, the way the chair smelled. And, yeah. You know, it just focuses kind of on what's important. And, yeah. Well, it's, it's not just Florida. like, you know, a, de- a, like a little detail at a time, like someone might focus on while they're doing everyday stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, I really, I liked it a lot. And it reminded, like, I haven't read enough William Gibson. This made me want to read more. Like, I haven't read all of his stuff, and I really feel like I need to. Um, yeah. Well, admittedly, I, like I said, he's he's one of my favorite authors, so I'm a little bit biased. But, well, I always love him when I read him. It's just, you know, there's only so much time. And this, this reminded me, is like, I really do need to go back and do the bridge and all that stuff. Mm. It was good. Bridge. Do you want me to read? There's a passage that I wanted to read. Um, yeah. Yeah. For yeah, a little bit a, more flavor. While we're, t- while we're talking about the language itself, that's probably better. Seems reasonable. So this is from near the beginning, and Wilf has, his, his thing has gone sour, and he's gotten drunk, and he doesn't know what he's going to do, and he's at his buddy's house, and he's gotten into the guy's expensive liquor, and now he's kind of being rousted by his friend's two servants, and it's going to talk a little bit about the tattoos that we brought up and, and things like that. So, Thuggishly butler-like, Ossian had very large thighs and upper arms, black hair braided at the nape, and blackly ribboned. Like Ash, a technical. They were partners, but not a couple. They minded Love's hobbies for him, kept his polt world sorted. They'd know about Daedra then, and Alita. Ossian was right about the whiskey. The congeners and brown li- liquors. Trace amounts only, but their effects could be terrible. Were, now. Her thumb withdrew brusquely, releasing his lower lid. The drawings of animals, startled, fled up her arm over her pale shoulder, gone. Her thumbnail, he saw, was painted a childish crayon green, chipped at the edges. She said something to Ossian in a momentary tongue, sounding vaguely Italian. Ossian replied in kind. That's rude, Netherton protested. Encryption isn't optional when we address one another, she said. It altered constantly, their encryption, something sounding Spanish, morphing into a faux German, in the course of a single statement, perhaps by way of something more like birdsong than speech. The birdsong was Netherton's least favorite. Whatever randomly synthetic language the one spoke, the other understood. Never the one thing long enough to provide a sim- sufficient sample for decryption. And so I like that because it's it's got some more of the description, tells you things about the world, but it's it's like, in this future even common human speech is a security risk and has to be encrypted between these two people who work together. And I think that's just, it's a, it's an amazing idea, but it's kind of cool. It just, you know, tells you a lot about their world. Yeah. Yeah. There's another character in the world um, who represents the metropolitan police. Um, Lobier. Uh, so cool. So Ainsley, cool. Ainsley Lobier. Yeah. She, she essentially has access to, almost anything anybody says anywhere like they're just the the surveillance state by that time has gotten so pervasive and professional that unless you're encrypting your conversation like that it'll be recorded and analyzed by algorithms and if it seems interesting fed to people like her who have tremendous amounts of nearly um unfettered power yeah like at one point she mentions that if flynn positively identifies the murderer she can take care of him. There's not going to be a trial. He's just gone. Like, just kill him right there. <laughs> yeah. Whoever's responsible. And she, she, she's, she's the judge, jury, and executioner. But she's a great character, really complex. And she comes in about, I'd say, midway through 
maybe a little bit earlier, but she's very scary to the people in the future because she's the only kind of law and yeah, she's basically like the the authoritative police representative of personification of the quote unquote clept that rules the world. But she's a warm character in a way, but also very strange yeah, well, and demanding. I, which is why I think it's interesting because you know she very obviously has you know misgivings about the system she works for. Yeah, and there's a great part where later on in the narrative, you meet Lobier's and, and some compatriots of hers from pre-jackpot like she one of the reasons why she wields so much power is because she actually was alive before the jackpot happened and so at a certain point they interact with her and it's implied that she was what involved in, in like british intelligence or something like that yeah um maybe a freelancer at that point but just kind of a cool idea of these spies kind of surviving and then becoming you know the de facto system um well i mean vladimir putin yeah and but she was she didn't come off as being she was scary but interesting and she becomes kind of almost friends with Wilf and I I enjoyed her character a lot she seemed really deep to me yeah one thing um, that I wanted to say about her <clears throat> excuse me her and Wilf's um, rich Russian friend who's like the son of one of these kleptocrats Lev. Lev. Yeah, Lev. yeah he's he's the guy who owns the stub that I keep referring yeah. to. One thing that I've I've noticed about um, Gibson books and actually a, kind of a lot of steampunk books, um, I want to say Reamed uh, was another example of this by uh, you know Neil, Neil Stevenson, who's thematically has a lot in common with William Gibson, and they've actually written several books together. But one thing I've noticed about a lot of these books is there seems to be a recurring theme of like unfettered capitalism is bad. But what if there was one really cool rich guy who was on our side? No, oh, I'm glad you brought that up. It always happens. There's always I, I like was, the the call, the call out for me was the um, the shadowy figure from the the last trilogy of books who was I think Hubertus Big End. Yeah, but from pattern recognition <laughs> in that series. Um, yeah, it was like this giant shadowy super super capitalist lurking in the background, and one of them just happens to be beneficent enough to not want to destroy the world for his own benefit right uh so that's something that i noticed in neil stevenson's reamda as well not just the trilogy you mentioned um with humberto huberto big ant george but also well that was just um, an example because it was yeah, the last thing gibson Peter, wrote, yeah. but and but like ahead, also yeah. dodge forthrast the basically the guy who invents the wow equivalent in reamda he's like this benevolent rich guy um, who's like mega millionaire or billion. He's a billionaire because he founded this video game and he like goes around being a benevolent guy the whole time. Like he was actually one of the main characters of, the, of that book. Wasn't yeah, he? he was, but he was yeah. like the, he fit that role. There's always like a super cool rich guy who has every reason to be like, at least, you know, more self-interested mm -hmm. than they end up being. It's invariably like, Oh, well, it's in my best interest to be awesome to you guys. Like, and I sort of got a little bit about that. The whole, the whole future sounded like that from the point of view of the people in the stub, not the people who were, you know, the people trying to kill, um, Burton and Flynn because they witnessed the murder, but the people who were trying to stop them, Lev and Ossian and Ash and Wilf, they're all like, Oh, well, the easiest way to accomplish our goals is to make you guys super freaking rich. And we're going to, like, control to me, your if you view world's it as, economy and give you, like, a third of it just because we sorry. like you. 
Yeah, they can just basically reach down, reach back out of the future and do magic. Yeah, and they. But um, but one thing I wanted to say real quick was that I did like I was thinking about that, and I, to George's point earlier, I did like that that we actually got a little bit of um insight into Loabir and why she's doing what she's doing and how she feels about the system, even though it did still still feel kind of a little bit too abstract for my taste, but better than I think a lot of books have done that I've read. So yeah, sorry to interrupt, George. Go ahead. Oh, no, no, you're fine. Um, I think that... I can't go into the other books because I haven't read them, so I don't know I, I think, necessarily I think we just need, you know, sci-fi, science fiction stories in general rather than specifically. It's... Yeah, I think it might be... It helps grease the wheels in terms of plot, like okay, it gets you past this hurdle of needing resources. You've got some resources that yeah. can go and do it. But for me, within this story, if you view Lev looking at the stub as a idle diversion to just while away the time... A toy. It's like when we play video games. Some people play Fallout, like I do, and play, you know, the first playthrough, you're an upstanding guy, you help people, even though they're virtual characters and virtual, you know, Megaton... I don't want to blow up Megaton. I want to help the people there and help them disarm the bomb and, you know, help everyone live good. But some people, when they play it, are like, let's see what it's like to just kill every single person in the game and see what that's like. And I yeah. weirdly <laughs> don't have the heart to do that no. in a video game of pixels. Uh, that's a good point. I guess when you get, when you come down to it, even though there's nothing these people can possibly do for us, in our case, because they're virtual... Um, in Lev's case, because he has everything he could possibly need for another dozen lifetimes, then yeah, if you have no reason to be selfish, then you have every reason to just sort of be the true lawful good paragon type person that you might do yeah, if for your some life people. is perfect. If altruism doesn't cost you anything. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, and it doesn't for them. And so, yeah, some people, but the, Flynn was lucky enough to be employed by someone who wanted to play a game in a friendly way rather than someone who wanted to see what would it be like to wreck this world's economy permanently and see these people just well, what was the, flounder. What was the counterexample yeah. from the book? Some guy took one of the stubs and set it up so that there were two nations who were just perpetually at war with each other so that he could harvest the weapons they designed to kill each other with. Yes. Yeah. Which and was just... Bah. And the thing that's really yeah. chilling is for him, and it seems according to the legal principles of London at the time, or of the the future world, the stubs are just, for all they can tell, simulations. But when you get into the mind of Flynn, it's very obvious that they are, they're real people. Those are real worlds. They're just alternate timelines. And so, like, yeah, he I killed they, billions they, of they people. Talk about, well, yeah. yeah, they talk about how they legally ruled it as... Since they're you know, alternate timelines, they don't count as actual people, so you can do whatever you want. Yeah, yeah. something like that. They're effectively, they're effectively, yeah, they don't count. Which is, yeah, which is chilling. It's a chilling realization, and so, yeah, I think part of it's Flynn got lucky. <laughs> Flynn and her friends got lucky. Um, yeah, and, 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 it, and I think that's very purposeful by Gibson of of saying, you know, it, it could be much worse. And in sub timelines, it is the darkest timeline. <laughs> So it seems to end pretty well, though, for Flynn and her buddies. Yeah. Well, let's let's talk about that ending because after after the the mystery is resolved and uh, you know the day is saved, it kind of uh, 
the last chapter kind of flashes for last two chapters. I'm sorry, flashed forward a little while after uh, things have settled down. And uh, Nathan, you and I were talking a little bit about this before about how things kind of resolved themselves. Yeah, it's it's something that I've noticed again. I'm going to bring a bring up a comparison to Stevenson, and I should preface this by saying that I think I've read every single book that Stevenson has written and probably 80% of what Gibson has written. So I like them. But just like in Reamed, it seems like there's this arbitrary tacked-on epilogue in which nearly everybody has been paired off romantically one way or the other, regardless of whether there was much focus on that at all during the course of the book. And even where it just seems it just seems very tacked on, like, oh, happy ending. These people got together. These people got together. This person got together with a tertiary character, but it's all good. Everyone's happy and paired off. Like it's, it's like just, the it's like the credit rule in Animal House where it tells you what happened to everybody. But nothing bad ever happened to anybody. Everyone literally it's all of them are what's his name, got married and runs a bank now. Yeah. Like if, if it was everybody. I, to be fair, I I did I I'm stroking on a little bit, but it did it was I thought it was kind of abrupt. And I think that was the one thing that kind of stuck with me a little bit after I finished the book. And and related to that, when I finished the book, I was struck with there never maybe I don't know, I read the book twice because we read it like a month and a half ago or two months ago and then didn't discuss it for whatever reason and now we had to discuss it again. But there some books are a series of something wretched happens and we barely scraped by and we have a brief respite and something wretched happens and we, you know eventually you seize like a partial victory that's you know slightly better than the worst case scenario and this book it only it only ever feels like something very minorly bad ever happens like given the stakes involved like there are like three incidents where i felt that anybody was even moderately yeah, even it was in any moderate, real danger yeah yeah nobody ever felt like unsafe like the worst things that happened in the book were just not very bad i don't know i mean from except for the I, murder victim I, I agree with like you. two people die but like the I, main character no way they're, they're, well more people die than that well, yeah connor who we haven't talked about but is this war vet who's mostly uh mostly disabled and so he just basically just jacks into this weird an arm tricycle yeah yeah he jacks into this weird tricycle thing and gets drunk and rolls around the back country roads which at a certain point they put a gun on it and he um like a scorpion kind tail. of yeah yeah they, they kind of rumble that people are after flynn when he finds apart from anybody that there's like new people in town and basically kills them because he understands what they're doing and he's a total badass who at a certain point he gets a peripheral also in the future with a war body and he's he's a bit nutty but he kills a bunch of people <laughs> true but i mean i guess the protagonist nothing bad ever happens like flynn gets kidnapped at one point um but you never and like they're surrounded by bad guys at another point and just it never feels like anything really bad is going to happen i well to me it seemed like they're in the future it's kind of different because it's such a different society. But in the pre in the near present in Flynn's timeline, it's so crappy and scuzzy their existence. It's just a real kind of a downer of a life. And part of it's also Flynn's mom is sick. The the she doesn't really have anyone in town she likes other than the sheriff guy that she ends up with because there's just no one suitable no, she's, in town. She's got friends. 
Oh, do you mean she's like got friends? But I'm saying like romantically, and it's just I liked these characters so much that I liked that they got a happy resolution. It's not like noir, like a lot of noir films and and, and stories, you know, end with kind of a return to the status quo or you know it's Chinatown, you know, it, it didn't matter that sort of thing. I liked. I, I was kind of a softie about it. I liked these characters so much. I was glad they all ended up happy. I was, but in I, terms of the, sorry, no, go ahead. I was just going to agree with you and say I, I did too. I wasn't, you know, wishing something bad was going to happen to, for the sake of the story. Well, no, it, 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 go on. In, in terms of the wild, wider stakes, though, Nathan, I think that it didn't bother me that much because, on the one hand, the future society—they're all happy, but they're they're all stable and protected, but they all seem fairly unhappy, and. In the present day, once they learn what jackpot is, it's like, well, enjoy it while it lasts because your society, maybe not now because we've altered it somewhat, but it might collapse and kill most of the people you know. <laughs> That's always kind of lurking in the background for me I mean, when I was reading it. My, my, my thing is more that during the course of the book, the stakes are high. They just don't feel that high. I felt differently. Okay. But yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I get what you said. I mean, Nathan, I, I there were only a couple parts of the book where I, like a, same as you, were, fe- were really feeling a lot of tension for the main characters. But, I don't know. Um, I feel like a lot of Gibson stuff is that way, where he doesn't spend a lot of time on fight scenes and action scenes. Those tend to go by pretty quick. Um... The ending, I don't know. I I don't really remember. I haven't read a lot of. I haven't read a lot of the old his older stuff recently, so I don't really remember how he's ended stuff before. Neuromancer had a very melancholy ending. Yeah. Well, I I don't think the happiness or the sadness of it was what really got me as much as it was the kind of abruptness. Mm. Like you flash forward, and all of a sudden, Flynn's ruling the world and choosing a first name basis with the president everyone's married and all that stuff. Yeah. It's more of an ending for a comedy rather than a noir film. You know, like how all comedies have to end with a marriage and yeah. Um, well, you know, yeah, I can see it's a bit odd. Well, I liked it though. Again, cause I like, I just liked the characters so it, much it, that I was like, it, I, it, it made me feel good that they, I mean, I, I was thinking about it afterwards too. And I think I would, I felt better about it than I would have felt with no resolution at all. Like, yeah. if they just ended, for example, on Flynn saying, okay, now let's go save my fucking family after they yeah. solve the, the future issues. Like, I thought that could have been a stopping point, but the more I thought about it, I don't think it would have been quite as okay not hearing it would, how things shook out a little bit more. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if Absolutely. the one question I had was, I'm not sure if this is the start of a trilogy or what because the the previous stuff that Gibson's done he's kind of had them had his books grouped into kind of a loose trilogies set in the same world uh this one seemed a little bit more like tied off at the end more of a yeah it felt very tied off yeah like it didn't didn't give the impression that there was room for stuff to flow on more I could see him doing a story with the post-Jackpot timeline and maybe a different stub or maybe just all post-Jackpot. But yeah, Flynn's world doesn't seem like it can do much more. Like, they're all happy, and then maybe the world ends in another 20 years or so. (laughs) Yeah. But maybe it doesn't. But yeah, like I don't see much more story to be told there. 
but yeah, the post jackpot world had a lot of stuff going on in it, so certainly room for exploration there. But as a self-contained story, I think it's fine. Yeah. All right. So, um... so I actually found this interview with uh, William Gibson on IO9 that I should have thought to look for before, um, where they ask if it's good work. The... Thank you. He said, is this the first part of a trilogy? And Gibson says, I don't think so. This is a standalone piece. I think this multiverse material has such inherently appalling genre cheese potential that writing sequels would inevitably involve explaining where and what the server is and who is doing what to whom. That would retroactively cheese out the original volume. We've seen this before with other books. No need to name names. Now I'm curious. The reason for those sequels the is... The entire Marvel Universe. Yes, well, the entire reason for those sequels is economic. It's okay. I can afford not to write this sequel. Um, and later, later he says, um, I didn't intend this, but the final two chapters intend, uh, wind up being this fantastically accurate litmus test of a reader's sociopolitical sophistication. If you think it's all well and good for either of those characters, when you get to the end, then give it 20 years of life experience and look at it again. Hmm. So he just called me stupid. Probably. Or Or young. I don't like this book. Well, we're all in our our early 30s, and I'm sure he was writing. uh, Speak for yourself, Nathan. I think this book was garbage. It was a garbage book, and I don't like it. As he says in the epigraph, which is a quote from H.G. Wells, I've already told you of the sickness and confusion that comes with time traveling. There, I snuck it in there. Sorry. I had to get my quote in. Good. Good work. No, I wanted you to get to that. He was. He was a time traveler. But yeah, okay, there you go. I think that's uh, that's a reasonable position. Yeah, I agree. Um, I, I, anyone have any lingering thoughts or questions about this? I think we've talked about my two pet peeves, which were the pairing off and the benevolent rich guy who's on our side. Yeah, um, we uh, we touched on that. Do you think that benevolent rich people shouldn't exist in fiction? I think they don't exist in real life, but fiction is fiction. Interesting. There are no benevolent rich people. No. Not an Elon Musk fan. Musk is doing things for his own reasons. We all do things for our own reasons. We all do things for the reasons that our reptilian overlords have uh, imprinted upon us in the egg, George. I, I am a reptilian. No wait. Um, we should probably table that topic for another discussion. We've also got off air. I'll take my answer off the air. John Carpenter invented. Well, yes. Thank God for Rowdy Roddy Piper. I will never not love that like 15-minute fight scene in the alley. That is my favorite work of American cinema right. to date. So genius. guys, it's just... Of course, we're talking about the great John Carpenter film. They live. Halloween. It's not an in-joke if you have what? to explain it. Oh, George said Halloween, oh. though. Did he? He's a strange oh. man. I am a man. I'm sure it wasn't Howard fully grown man. The Thing from Another World. Never seen it. Let's, Let's give, it, give a it a rating. George, why don't you start us off with that? Five out of five haptic implants into my brain nodes. Ooh. All right, Nathan, how about your rating? I would say nine out of ten um, pork-like nuggets. <laughs> pork-like nuggets. I forgot. That's right. That's a food I stuff forgot, that you I know, forgot about in your, the in your future. <laughs> Delicious. So gross. I'm sure it would taste amazing. Do you remember the name of the, of the like one restaurant in town? It was like Taco Egg Roll Eatery or something bar. insane like that. 
sushi bar. And then they had they had another <laughs> one. There was like one other that did breakfast Jimmy's? burritos that were I think it was apparently Jimmy's. terrible. Jimmy's, yeah. It was really bland. Yeah, that's more normal. All sushi right. barn. I love it's it. It's coming. I ate at a restaurant last week called uh, Sushi and Sliders. One of my favorite restaurants is called uh, Egg Roll number, number One. It's, yeah, it's heavy or heavy over food, but I like one it. Uh, in Cleveland? It's number one. No. We also we also have a number one egg roll and an egg roll number one. I That's really don't know the difference. The suburbs of Indianapolis. Peter. Yeah, yeah sorry. I, I give it. Uh, I'm going to go with nine out of ten possible space-time continua. Nice. So there you go. That is the there peripheral. There you go. And, uh, and that does, wraps up the peripheral. Want to talk oh, sorry. About, uh, give him a sneak preview of what's coming up. Well, we've got Nathan is our next Hey, Nathan, I love later, that guy. So that means he will be choosing the book. Hey. Do you? That's an odd thing to think or feel. Why? What? No, don't worry about that. Why don't you tell us what book we're I going to read? I just wanted him to feel good. Our next. Why? Oh, I feel That's terrible. an odd thing to say and feel. Nathan, what book are we going to be reading next? We're going to be reading Ancillary Justice by Anne Leckie. Um, this book won a ton of awards last year. I think all of them. I think every, it might be every, every, an Oscar award. I think it won the Hugo, the Lotus, the Nebula, the John Campbell, the Pete Campbell, the Pete Doherty Award. The it it won everything. Um, and as far as I can tell. It is a it is about a person who used to be a spaceship who's out to kill the emperor. That's right. Why did she write a book about me? I don't know. I'd imagine because she's a bold and imaginative new talent. Oh. Well, I always like bold and imaginative new yes. talents. Anyway, I'm really excited about it. I've started reading it um, in between reading baby books and books on how to be a better editor. It's a good idea to start reading baby books before you what? actually have a baby. I have several months Once to go. Once you're done, you should write a book about I was having not a baby being sarcastic. while being a better editor. Yeah. I will try. And on that bombshell... Are we really doing that? <laughs> you asked that last time, and what did I, what did I tell you last time? It was probably we're, yes. We're, we're, oh, it was a most definite yes, and we are definitely moms. doing that. Until you figure We're out where it's bombs. actually from. And it's not Top Gear. And on that bombshell. I hate you. That was and is Lizard People, Dear Readers. Bye-bye. This has been Lizard People, Dear Readers. A production of Yellow Sonar Industries. Sound engineering is performed by Matthew Quiet of Podcom Services. All music written and performed by Stephen Edwards. Updates and information can be found at lizardpeopledearreaders.com. Contact us on Twitter at drlizardpeople or by email at lizardpeopledearreaders at gmail.com. Very few humans were harmed during the making of this production. <laughs>